0: Well, good morning, great to be back with you again. As Wayne said, Michael and I go way back and so it's always uh, an honor to pinch hit for him. So I really count this an honor and uh, got a lot of family and friends here. I won't call everybody out and she's very shy but I always like to honor my mom. And so mom, it's good to uh, see you. So she came over from Mount Juliet to be here and to encourage me and us, but. As we start this morning, I don't know if you've noticed this, but have you been paying attention that the heat in the United States is being turned up on the church? The heat is really being turned up on Christians and the church, and I'm not even talking about the COVID chaos. I'm not talking about you can meet to protest, but not praise. You can gather to gamble, but not glorify God. But we'll let you gather in smaller groups, just don't sing. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. Here's what I'm talking about. If you as a Christian, if I as a Christian, if we as a church step forward and just state the basic foundational tenets of Christianity that the church has held for 2,000 years, if we just step forward and say those things, now we are labeled with all kinds of terms. Social media fires up. If you were to step forward and say, there is objective truth. This is true, this is false. This is right, this is wrong. You're going to be lambasted. If you have the audacity to say, Scripture teaches there is male, there is female. Get ready for the heat. If you have the boldness to say, the Scripture teaches, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. If you say that, be prepared for an onslaught of oppression in the good old united states how did we get here now that's a big question i'm not going to spend a lot of time here and i'm just going to take just a minute or two and i'm going to paint with some very broad strokes here but you will get the point we have to totally bury our heads in the sand and be com- Complete historical revisionists to deny the fact that the United States was founded on a Judeo-Christian ethic. That does not mean all of our founding fathers were Bible-thumping fundamentalists. That is not what that means. It means that when the country was founded, there was a belief in objective truth, and the fathers believed in the basic morality contained in the Ten Commandments, and that formed a moral foundation for the country. That's just fact. And for over 200 years, roughly speaking, society lived by that. Culture acknowledged that. So what that means is, society formed sort of a protective covering for the church. So for basically 200 years, you and I as Christians could come to the church and in private here, we would have a covering in the church building and we could state what we believe and we're protected. We could also for nearly 200 years walk out of the church building into society at large But there was a protective covering over us, a cultural uh, conscience that basically agreed with us, and that protected us. So we could leave the private confines of the church building, go out into public, and still state there is objective truth. The basic morality found in the Ten Commandments is true of society, and we were protected. But then roughly speaking, we hit the 1960s. And all kinds of stuff started coming out in the 60s. Rationalism, relativism, pluralism, culturalism. And so what started happening in the 60s and up to today is that protective covering that we had over us out in the pub started getting little rips and tears in it. Little nicks here and there. But now we're today and that protective covering that is out there in society has been ripped to shreds. Now you walk out in our culture and the only objective truth that exists today is there is no objective truth. The only sin today is saying something is a sin. Are you following me? So when you and I are here in private stating this... We still have a measure of protection. But when we walk out into the public and we say the same things that churches and Christians have been saying for 2,000 years, the pressure is on, the heat is turned up because that canopy of protection no longer exists. And God forbid if you're a Christian business person or a political leader, And you step out in the public arena and you start stating things. There is a good chance you will lose your job, your livelihood, all that you have worked for. And you know what I'm talking about. In the good old USA. Now I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. I am not minimizing anything that I just said. I'm not minimizing that one bit. The pressure is on in the United States. But even the pressure that we are experiencing right now that I just alluded to is nothing, is nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters around the globe have been experiencing for years and years and years. We are experiencing pressure here at home in the United States. They are experiencing persecution around the globe. The Voice of the Martyrs that you can read about at persecution.com, a ministry devoted to the persecuted church, says that there are over 40 countries today with open hostility against Christians. You can go to opendoors.com, another ministry devoted to the persecuted church, and they will tell us that right now there are 260 million Christians living in these hostile countries. Last year alone, over three, uh, roughly speaking, 3,000 Christians were martyred, killed. 4,000 were falsely imprisoned. 10,000 church buildings were attacked, damaged, or destroyed. Their only crime? Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and bearing his name. Christian Post is a Christian website where you can go and keep up with what's sort of going on in the church. I just took these over the last couple of weeks. These are just the headlines from the last couple of weeks. Not years ago, just the last couple of weeks. These are news articles at christianpost.com. Hindu extremists in India attack praying pastor's family with sharp weapons. Iranian pastor and wife lose appeal of prison sentences for house church participation. In India, Hindu extremists beat handicapped pastor for following foreign god. Chinese security officials raid mom's group affiliated with house church. Four Iranian converts face years in prison for participation in house church. Pakistani Christian man faces blasphemy charges punishable by death over a Facebook post. In China, a street preacher was arrested for illegal evangelism. Christian teacher facing execution in Syria after refusing to give school to Islamist groups. 14 Baptist church members killed during suspected Fulani massacre in Nigeria. Thousands of Christians in Nigeria killed. UK calls for investigations into reports of genocide. Pakistani Christian man arrested on blasphemy charges for Quran pages found in his sink. Again, this wasn't a year ago, two years ago. I just gathered these headlines from reading the Christian Post over the last couple of weeks. What I'm saying is this. The pressure on us as Christians here in the United States is intensifying. But that is nothing compared to the persecution that our brothers and sisters are experiencing around the globe right now. So the question that's on the table for us this morning is, when the pressure is turned up, when the persecution is turned up, how do we respond? What should we be doing? Now, that's a broad question, requires a broad answer. We're going to get very specific. I'm not going to fully answer that question this morning. I'm just going to tell you one thing we need to be doing, just one or perhaps several. I want you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Now, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for his final week of his earthly life. And as he is making his way to Jerusalem, and he goes through towns and villages, he stops, he talks, he teaches, he ministers. And that's where we find him here. He's on the road to Jerusalem, just ministering on his travels. Now, we're going to camp out in a parable in Luke 18. But before we get there, we need to understand the context of this parable, so we've got to go back to Luke 17. So once you go to Luke 17, just turn the page, and look at verse 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, now stop right there. The Pharisees asked Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? You have to understand what was in their head. Israel, all the way back in Genesis, had been formed by God to be a blessing to the earth. The Messiah was coming through Israel to bless the whole earth. And conscientious Jews of Jesus' day were looking for their Messiah. Just like we're looking for the second coming of Jesus, they were looking for the first coming of their Messiah. And in their minds, their Messiah was a political ruler. He was going to come into town and he was going to overthrow the political oppressors of Israel. It's currently Rome. Israel had been under political domination for centuries. Currently, it was Rome. They were crying out. They were oppressed. They were afflicted. And they wanted a Messiah who would come in and rescue them and bring justice. And that's what the Pharisees are asking. When is the kingdom of God coming? And notice Jesus answered and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed nor will they say, look here, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is basically saying, before we get to that political ruler, rulership of the Messiah, we've got to deal with something on the inside. That's basically, in a nutshell, what he's saying. Now look at verse 22. And he said to his disciples, and you've got to understand this verse right here, he said to his disciples, the days shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Jesus is saying to the twelve. Listen guys. There's coming a day. When the heat is going to be turned up. The pressure is going to be intense. And you will long. For just one of the days. When the son of man sets up his kingdom. You're going to be longing for it. And you're not going to see it. Does that sound familiar? All right. You've got to file that one away. Verse Verse 23. And they will say to you, look here, look here. Do not go away. Do not run after them. What they're saying is people are going to say, here's the Messiah. He's come back. He's come back. Jesus said, now don't go down that road. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. You're not going to miss him. You can't help but know the Son of Man is back, is basically what he's saying. But notice verse 25. He's coming back. But look at verse 25, but first, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The son of man is coming back. He's going to be revealed. Trust me, you're not going to miss it. But first, the son of man has to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. File that away. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of Son of Man. And then he says, in the days of Noah, people were living their lives, and then the flood came. And notice at the end of verse 27, and the flood destroyed them all. In other words, judgment is coming. And then he says in verse uh, 28, the same thing happened in the days of Lot. They were living their lives, and then notice verse 29, and then it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Right now, I've got to suffer many things and be rejected. In other words, the cross. But there's a day the Son of Man is coming back to bring justice, to bring judgment. That's what's in their mind. That's what they're thinking. And so then Jesus says, hey, since we're talking about this subject of justice and judgment, let me tell you a little story. Now go to verse 18. As you know, verses, the verse numbers, the chapter numbers were not a part of the original text. Chapter numbers were added many, 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 many years later, just for easy reference. Here is an unfortunate chapter division. Because we start chapter 18, verse 1, we think it's a brand new scene. It's not a new scene. It's the continuation of what they've just been talking about. They've been talking about judgment. They've been talking about justice. They've been talking about the Son of Man coming up and setting up his rulership. And Jesus says, hey, since we're talking about judgment, let me tell you a little story. Now let's get the text on the table. Verse, chapter 18, verse 1. Luke says, now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And here's the parable Jesus said. There was a certain city, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection, literally give me justice from my opponent, literally my adversary. And for a while, the judge was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming to me, she wears me out, literally gives me a black eye. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Okay, again, Jesus has been talking about coming judgment, coming justice. And he says, since we're on this subject of justice and judgment, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a parable. Now, we have to understand what a parable is. A parable, the word literally means to throw beside. It is a down-to-earth story that is revealing a deep kingdom principle or truth. If there is someone there to make the connection. If you just have the story, it's just a nice story. You have to have someone who connects it to the deep spiritual truth. For example, if I said to you, a monkey can fall out of a tree, that's a parable. That's a parable. But you have no idea what I'm talking about. But if I said, you know, a monkey can fall out of a tree... Even experts make mistakes every now and then. Oh, that makes sense. A monkey is an expert at climbing, but even the best can make a mistake every now and then. You see, I made the connection for you. Jesus tells a story. Story. It's a wonderful story, but it's just a story until the connection is made. Well, thankfully, we have both Luke in verse 1 and Jesus later in the story making the connection for us. Now, he's going to tell a story. So the first thing I want to do in this story is to introduce you to the participants, the three players in this story. We have three. Jesus said there was a city and in that city was a judge. Now you pick up commentaries and the authors are going to go back and forth. Was this a Roman judge? Was this a Hebrew judge, a Jewish judge? Jesus doesn't say we're not going to get lost in the weeds. It's a story. It's a judge. And Jesus says two things about this judge. This judge did not fear God, and this judge did not have regard for his fellow man. Now that pretty much sums it up. This guy, this judge, did not have reverence for God. He did not have regard for humanity. He had no conscience toward God. He had no compassion for people. I mean, you can't go into this guy's courtroom and say, your honor, for the love of God, help me. He doesn't care. You can't go into his courtroom and say, for the love of humanity, your honor, help me. He doesn't care. Jesus says the whole law can be stumped up in this, love God and love your neighbor. He violated them all. He didn't love God and he didn't love his neighbor. That's about as bad as you can get. But he's a judge. He's in a position of authority. He's in a position of decision-making. He's going to render judgments. That's player number one. Now we've got player number two, the widow. Obviously, a widow is a woman whose husband has passed away. Now, ladies, don't throw anything at me. I'm just telling you the culture of the day. In that day, it was a male-dominated society. She needed a man to help her. She needed a man to defend her. She needed a man to fight for her. She needed a man to provide for her. That was just the culture of the day. And so when she has no man, she has no husband, she becomes vulnerable. She becomes helpless. She becomes hopeless, susceptible. The widow all throughout scripture is representative of the most vulnerable, weak, helpless person. So we have the widow. But then there is a third player, a third participant that a lot of people overlook. They say there are two. No, there are three. The widow goes into the courtroom and says, judge, give me justice over my opponent. Now, for grins, the word that's translated opponent is the same word that Peter uses for the devil in 1 Peter 3.18. Or 5.8. Uh, it's the adversary. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. That's the word here. It is the plaintiff. It's someone who is on the offense. It's someone who's trying to take advantage of her. Jesus warned against people who will come in and devour widows' houses, who will prey on the hopeless, who will prey on the helpless. We see that in today's culture. Who are the most vulnerable? The elderly. Especially elderly women, unscrupulous business people will come in and try to take advantage of them. That's what's going on right here. So you know the three players: we've got a judge, we've got a widow, and we've got an adversary. Now, what's the plot of this story? This lady shows up in the courtroom of this man, this judge. Now, don't think of some elaborate courtroom. It was probably a tent and a chair. Okay, it's so not something elaborate. She goes into the courtroom. He calls the case, and she says, "Your Honor." I am here because I have no man to represent me. And this opponent of mine, this adversary of mine, is contending that my husband owed him money. He has passed away, and now he is trying to come and collect this money, and is trying to take my house. Your Honor, I have documentation showing that debt has been paid. Nothing is owed to this man. He's just trying to take advantage of me. I need justice. I need protection. And the judge says, Ma'am, don't you have some man in your life? Don't you have a son? Don't you have a brother? Don't you have an uncle? Don't you have some man? No, Your Honor, I have no man. It's just me. And excuse me, do you have any money to pay the judge costs? I mean, the court cost. You know it takes money to get in here and make your way through the system here. Do you have any money to take care of the court costs? No, Your Honor, get out of here. I don't even want to hear this case. Be gone. Throws her out of the courtroom. The next day, court is in session. He calls the docket. She steps forward. Your honor, he looks at her, he said, wait a minute. You look vaguely familiar. Don't I recognize you? Yes, your honor, I was here yesterday because this adversary of mine is trying to take my house, trying to take the few pennies that I have. Yes, I remember you. I remember you. You don't have any man and you don't have any money. Get out of here. I'm tired of listening to you. Be gone. Next day, court's in session, shows up again. He looks at her and he says, you again, what do you want? She looks at him and says, you know, you know what I want. He looks at her and says, ma'am, can I get something straight? Are you going to keep showing up here in my courtroom pestering me, bothering me until I give you what you want. Yes, your honor, you are exactly right. I have no man to fight for me. I have no money to fight with, but there is one thing I have, and that is moxie. I have grit. I have determination. I will not give up. I will be here on your doorstep every day until you give me justice. And he looks at her. He says, listen, I couldn't care less about your God. I couldn't care less about you. There's only one thing I care about, and that is me. I value my mental health. I value my emotional health. And for my own sanity, I'm giving you what you want. You are wearing me out. You have your justice. Case dismissed. Bailiff, get a restraining order against her adversary. Tell her not to touch him. Woman, get out of my courtroom. I don't want to ever see you again. That was the plot. That's the story. What's the point? It was a nice story. It was entertaining. But what's the point? Thankfully, Jesus makes the point. Drop down to verse number six. And the Lord said, here's the point. Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Jesus said, hear what this corrupt judge did. This corrupt judge who doesn't love God, who doesn't love humanity, granted justice. Verse 7. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over him? Do you see it? Jesus says you've got a corrupt judge over here, and he gave justice. How much more will your God, who is just, who is a loving Father, give you justice? Do you see the point? The point is if we've got a corrupt judge who is dispensing justice in the end for whatever reason, how much more will God grant justice to his people? That's the point. Now, we have got to break this down and look at the different segments of this point here. I'm going to go fairly quickly, but I want you to stay with me because this answers the question. What do we do when the pressure's turned up? What are we doing in light of this persecution that's going on? Jesus has made the point. Now, let's look at the pieces of this point. First thing we have to understand is there are people who were persecuted here. There were people who were experiencing affliction. Now, watch this. Jesus says, God is going to grant justice to his elect, his chosen, his people who cry to him day and night. Here's the question. Why were they crying to him day and night? Why were they demanding justice? Because they were being persecuted. There would be no crying day and night. There would be no cry for justice if there weren't persecution. You see, the very presence of, Lord, we need justice presupposes there's persecution. Do you see it? Just like the widow in the story, God, give me justice from my adversary God's people are crying out give me justice Israel had been crying for centuries give me justice there was a cry for justice because of the persecution we have to understand something this is a wake-up call for me this is a wake-up call for you this is a wake-up call for the American church Suffering as a believer is part of the Christian life. Persecution for naming the name of Christ is part of what we signed up for. You see, when Jesus was on the earth, he didn't walk around and saying stuff like this. You want your best life now? Follow me. You want a better you now? Follow me. You want to know how to dress for success and color me beautiful? Follow me. You want 10 steps to a happy marriage? Follow me. He didn't say, you want everything nice and rosy and fine and easy, breezy? Just come follow me. He didn't say stuff like that. Now, to be fair, Jesus did say, I am coming to give you life, and I am coming to give it to you abundantly. He did say... Come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He did say that, but he also said stuff like this. Before you come to me, you need to sit down and count the cost. Because the last thing I want you to do is to get halfway into this journey with you and me. And then the heat gets turned up and then you say, hey, I didn't sign up for this. You didn't tell me this up front. It's a bait and switch. You got me with this abundant life and rest talk now. The heat's turned up. Jesus said, you need to sit down before you come and count the cost. I'm telling you right up front before you come to me. The world hated me and the world's going to hate you. You will be hated by all nations because of me. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. He looked at the 12 one time and he said, there's coming a day when they're going to kill you and think they're doing a service for God. But he also said, blessed are you when you are hated and excluded and reviled and spurned for my name's sake. See, we got to understand something. When we take the name of Christ... Jesus warned us, you will be rejected. And the New Testament writers picked up on this theme. Peter says, don't be surprised at all the persecution you're experiencing. John said, don't be surprised that the world hates you. And Paul to the Philippians said, It has been granted to you, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. Do you see that? As I talk to Christians, sometimes I scratch my head because they're saying things like, I can't believe we as Christians are being rejected. I I can't believe the church is being persecuted. I, I can't believe what's going on. The New Testament says, don't be shocked. Like I said, for 200 years, we've had a canopy of protection over us. That canopy is gone. It's open season on you now when you're out in the public view. Don't be surprised. The world is just doing what the world does. Don't be shocked. That's the theme of the New Testament. You bear the name of Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. Don't be shocked. So that's part of this story right here. The fact that they are crying for justice day and night is because they are being persecuted. So what do these persecuted people do? First of all, we have a negative. Luke says, don't give up. I'm very appreciative of Luke's comments in Luke chapter or verse one. Notice what he says. Now, Jesus was telling them a parable to show at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Luke says, Here's one of the reasons Jesus told this story so they would always pray and so they wouldn't lose heart. Lose heart means to give up, give out, give in, grow weary, get discouraged throw up your hands. Literally, it means there's a goal out there and we are working for it. But in the midst of working toward the goal, it gets too hard and we quit. If we were talking about athletes, an athlete has a championship out there, a ring out there. And so he starts training for that ring, starts training for that gold medal. But you get into the training, you get into the competition. This is too hard. It's not worth it. I just give up. The, The medal's not worth all this. If it were a student, the student is working toward a degree. But to get that degree, there's coursework. There's papers to write. There are exams to take. So we're in the midst of the coursework. It's just too dang hard. That degree's not worth all this. And so it just means to get in there, I just can't take it. I didn't sign up for this. I want the glory, but not the guts. I just, I, I, don't, I don't want it. So in context, what are we talking about? What did we sign up for? When you and I signed on with Jesus to be a follower of Jesus, to be his disciples, to take up his name, what did we sign up for? Part of it is just to bear the name of Jesus and whatever consequences come with it. And Jesus said, Don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Don't give out. Be like that widow. She showed up every day. She wasn't losing heart. She only had one thing. That was determination. Hang in there. I want to share a passage with you. It's in John 6. The context is not persecution, but you'll get the principle. In John chapter 6, Jesus had fed the 5,000 with fish and chips. A lot of people. You want to attract a crowd, just give them free food. Especially when you are just sort of miraculously making the food right there. That will get you a crowd. Jesus had a crowd. And he looks at this crowd and basically says something like this. If you want life, you got to drink my blood and eat my flesh. They had the same response you just had. They said, this is a hard teaching. And John said, many of them, when they heard that hard teaching, stopped following him. Went away. Jesus saw the crowds leaving him. He turned to the 12 who were right there. And he said, are you going to leave me too? I love what Peter said. Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I want to ask you a question. When the pressure is on, if we end up experiencing persecution in the United States the way our brothers and sisters are around the globe, if we are tempted to give up and give in and go away, here's a question. Where are you going to go? There's no plan B. Is Jesus... Or where are you going to go? That's why Jesus is telling this story. Don't give up. Don't give in. That's the negative. Don't get weary. But what's the positive? The positive is pray. So we've looked at the perseverance. Now look, let's look at the prayer. Luke says again in verse 1. Now Jesus was telling them a par- parable to show at all times they ought to pray. Luke says Jesus told this story so that his followers would pray at all times. Now, this does not mean continuously occurring. It means constantly reoccurring. Do you see the difference? It doesn't mean 24-7 all we're doing is praying. It means we prayed yesterday, so we're going to pray today. We're praying today, we're going to pray tomorrow. It means a habit, constantly reoccurring all seasons of prayer. And then drop down to verse number 7. Jesus says, God's elect are crying out day and night. It's an idiom which means pray always. It means be in a habit of prayer. Here's the deal. When the persecution and the pressure is on, we've got to pray. Because it's dangerous to stay in that situation without prayer. When the pressure and the persecution is a little bit lighter and we're just rocking along and everything is fine, we got to pray because it would be shameful to neglect such a great opportunity for prayer. When the pressure is on, we pray. When the pressure is not on, we pray. That's what Luke says. That's what Jesus says. Day and night, always, constantly reoccurring. Do you see we've got two choices here? The pressure is on. You've got two choices. You can give up or you can pray. And they can't coexist. If we're giving up, we're not praying. If we're praying, we're not giving up. One drives out the other. And when we're praying, what is the content of the prayer? Would you just jot down James chapter 5 because this episode in James 5. I'm not going to have you turn there and read it for the sake of time. But in James chapter 5, we have a real flesh and blood example of what Jesus is talking about. James, chronologically speaking, is the first book written in the New Testament. James was our Lord's half-brother he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Persecution came into the church at Jerusalem. The believers were scattered. The people he is writing to are being persecuted. They are on the run trying to make ends meet. And what's happening in James chapter 5 is they are working in the fields for some wealthy landowners. They go at the end of the day, the end of the week to get their paycheck and the wealthy landowners will not pay them. And not only is he withholding their wages, he is making up trumped up charges on them, having thrown, throwing throwing them in jail. And James says, you're even murdering the innocent people. These people were being persecuted. And James wrote in James five to these wealthy landowners. And he says, the cries of the persecuted, the cries of those harvesting your crops have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These people were crying out to the Lord for justice. They were crying out to the Lord. What is the content of our prayer? When the pressure is on, it is okay to go to the Lord. Lord, we need justice. We need relief. We are naming the name of Christ. We follow the example of what James is telling his readers. Cry out to the Lord of hosts. He told the wealthy landowners, their cries have reached the father's ears and judgment is coming for you. But then James, in mid-chapter, then turns to the people who are being persecuted. And you know what he told them? Be patient. Don't give up. The judge is standing at the door. He's ready to come. Do you see what James said? It's the same thing Jesus said. Persecution is here. Don't give up. Pray. And look for the justice. And see, that's the promise of what Jesus is saying. Look right here. Here's the promise. Shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. Jesus says in no uncertain terms, God is bringing justice. There is a promise here. God is bringing justice. God is going to even the score. He hears the cries. He sees what's going on, and he is bringing justice. And Jesus says he's bringing it speedily, quickly, soon. But that's been 2,000 years ago. We still have no justice. It's what the people in the Old Testament did. How long, Lord? How long? God says, wait for it. And we always have to remember what Peter says. Peter says, with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. So if we use God's timetable and calendar, Jesus has only been gone two days. The whole of the New Testament says, hang in there, justice is coming. I, want to, I do want to read... One passage to you. I want you to listen very carefully to this. Again, this is sort of a wake-up call for Christians. we got to be ready. All right? I want you to listen what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. We're not talking about Israel. We're talking about the church, you and me, right here. Notice what Paul says to the Thessalonians. Listen carefully. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure." In the first century, he's writing to the Thessalonian church in the city of Thessalonica and said, you are being persecuted, you are being afflicted, but you have faith. You are persevering. And notice what Paul says. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Here's what I want you to get. Verse 6. For after all, It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give to you, give relief to you who are afflicted And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord, and they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Do you see what Paul is telling these Christians who were being persecuted? I really appreciate your perseverance. I really appreciate your faith. I brag on you. Every time I'm in a different city, in a different church, I brag on you Thessalonians. And I want you to understand something. God is going to repay those who afflict you. Justice is coming. When is justice coming? When Jesus Christ comes back. I don't know about you, It's hard for me to get in here and relate to all of this stuff because I live a very comfortable life. I live a very comfortable Christian life. I have really not suffered persecution because I named the name of Jesus. Oh, I may get a look here or there, but, you know, nobody's beat me up. Nobody's burned down my house. That's what was happening with these people. And he said, I'm so grateful for your perseverance. And I got to tell you something. I promise you, justice is coming. You read the book of Revelation. It talks about Jesus coming back and avenging the blood of his saints. So the promise is hanging there. Justice is coming. But then there's one final thing In this parable, Jesus says, I promise you, God will give justice. I promise you, justice is coming. But notice his final plea, verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's like Jesus says, I'm promising you justice is coming. I'm promising you God's going to even the score but I got one final for you. Even though you've got that promise, even though you have that assurance, when the Son of Man comes, will you still be standing? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith among his people? Will he find people who are praying for that justice, who are hanging in there, Wow. I don't know about you, but this reminds me of the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He leaves nine apostles, or I guess it was eight. Judas already gone. He leaves eight, but then he takes three, Peter, James, and John, deeper into the garden. So Jesus is over there. He leaves Peter, James, and John right here, and he looks at them. He says, listen, guys, stay awake and pray so that... You don't fall into temptation. So you don't give in to trials. Because even though your spirit is willing, your flesh is weak. Jesus goes deeper in the garden and prays, what did these guys do? They slept. They weren't praying. They weren't staying awake. They weren't dealing with their flesh. They slept. When Jesus came back and then the soldiers came to arrest them, him, what did these guys do? Ran. That's what Jesus is saying right here. Church, we're getting pressure right now. Don't be surprised. Church, don't be surprised if that pressure intensifies. Don't go to sleep. we got work to do. When Jesus Christ comes back, will he find faith? Or will he find sleeping Christians? Persevere. Now I want to say one quick final word. I've already alluded to it. We're experiencing pressure right here. Our brothers and sisters are experiencing persecution. Hebrews 13, 3 says, remember those who are in prison. That is, remember your brothers and sisters who are in prison for their faith is what that means. Remember those who, and he says, remember those who are in prison as if you're there with them. And he says, remember those who are ill-treated, persecuted for their faith, because you are a part of the body. That's our brothers and sisters over there in Nigeria. That's our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are in prison, who are being killed, church buildings being demolished. We've got pressure. They've got persecution. I encourage you. Go to persecution.com. Go to opendoors.com. Join in prayer with the persecuted church. Educate yourself as to what's going around the globe. But also, be ready here. Pray. Stay awake. And let me leave you with this little ditty so you can remember the parable. Pressure exists. Persecution exists. So prayer must persist.